why did Jesus come? As you settle in, I'm going to set the context as we try to answer that question from our text this morning, which is Matthew chapter 9 and verses 9 through 13. Remember, Matthew has opened his gospel and he has written to the end of convincing us that Jesus, the son of Mary, the son of Joseph, is also the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of God, and the long-awaited Messiah King. He has sought to prove this to us by laying out for us Jesus' qualifications as king. Jesus' resume looks pretty good as far as it goes. He comes from the right family. He is the son of David, and it does seem that he also comes from Abraham. He fulfills prophecies. And so we can see even in his infancy, a star appears in the sky. It leads magi and nations to worship him. They probably don't arrive until he's about a toddler. He faces potential death as a child, much like Moses. He has to flee a murderous king. We even see in him a sort of new Israel. As he is called out of Egypt as God's son passes through waters and his baptism goes into the wilderness where he is tempted and tried and then comes to a mountain where he speaks God's words. He has the right family, he fulfills the right prophecies, and he has some really good endorsements. Remember back to his baptism, when he comes up out of the water, the Holy Spirit of God rests on him and anoints him as king. The father's voice booms out and says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus has the look of a king and he wields the authority of a king. That's sort of the section we're in now. We've marked that off from you know, chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount up to about chapter 11-ish, right, give or take. And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount doesn't teach as one of the scribes appealing to external authorities, but speaks with God's own voice. He calls people into a kingdom he claims to be bringing. He calls them to repent of their sins and to trust in him, to become poor in spirit and depend not on their own righteousness to enter into the kingdom, the kingdom of God, but on his righteousness. He calls people to himself and to holiness. Those who do come to Jesus, he has this expectation that they will then live like he lives. They will live distinct lives. They will look like citizens of the kingdom of heaven as they dwell here on earth. Jesus finishes up his sermon by challenging those who listen to build their lives not on the sand of worldly wisdom, but on the rock that is his word and his person and his work. That we then see him come down from that outdoor pulpit and immediately he displays to us that he is not all talk. He also has the authority to heal. He teaches with authority and he acts with authority. He cleanses a leper with a touch. He heals a centurion's servant with a word from a great distance. He even heals 
Peter's mother-in-law. Apparently, I slipped and said his mother-in-law, which leads us into all sorts of heresies. But uh, Peter's mother-in-law is the one he heals, and he heals a whole host of others as well. And that, that even, that's not to mention what we see at the back end of chapter 8. Remember? The disciples and he, they have the little flotilla, they're going across, trying to go to the way of the Gadarenes, the place of the Gadarenes, and a storm rises up, a seismos megas. Storm is throwing a fit and Jesus puts it in timeout. It stills at his word. And the disciples say, what sort of man is this that even the, the winds and the sea obey him? And then Matthew gives us the answer. He puts it in the mouth of demons. So they fall down before Jesus. And they say, what do you have to do with us, O Son of God? That's who this man is. The Son of God. Man. And Jesus then casts those demons into pigs and into the sea to their destruction. That's before we get to the beginning of chapter 9 where the most astounding thing yet happens. A man who is crippled is brought to Jesus, and Jesus forgives his sins. Well, it surprises everybody in the room. They think he's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus recognizes uh, the whispers and the murmurs. He knows their thoughts and their hearts, and he says, well, you're right. I could just say his sins are forgiven, and you would have a hard time proving that that happened or didn't happen. You can't see it. Not not really uh, verifiable. He says, but let me, let me show you something so that you can know the Son of Man, that's his favorite self-designation, that highly exalted figure from Daniel. Let, you, let me let you know that the Son of Man has the power on earth to forgive sins. And he tells the crippled man to get up and walk. And the man gets up, picks up his bed, and goes home, just like Jesus said. And so everyone around marvels and says, who has given such authority to men? We see that Jesus fits the profile of a king. He has the power of a king. He exercises the authority of a king. And yet, we are still left with that question. Why did Jesus come? Certainly God could have exercised all of this same authority from his throne in heaven. Why did God the Father send God the Son by the power of God the Holy Spirit to take up residence in the womb of a virgin girl? Well, we have a hint at our answer there in verse 21 of chapter 1 when an angel is convincing Joseph that Mary has not been promiscuous and should not be divorced. Angel says to Joseph, She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And in our passage this morning, we will find Jesus give to us that mission statement. He says it in verse 13, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Here, Jesus came to call sinners to himself. Jesus came to save sinners from the wrath of God and to give them eternal life. 
It's our main idea of our passage this morning is that Jesus saves sinners. Outline is there before you. We'll pray and we'll get started this morning. Father, we ask that you would speak through your word, that you would make us more like the good shepherd who laid his life down for us, his sheep. Pray that this morning, as I expound your word, that we, your people, would be fed. Speak, Lord, for your people listen. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And Matthew rose and followed him. Matthew, in this passage in verse 9, is the same apostle who writes the gospel which we have been working our way through. So how did Matthew, or Levi as he is named in Mark and Luke, how did Matthew Levi move from tax collector to apostle? Well, it's obvious here. Let's not look past the obvious. Jesus called him to follow him, and Matthew obeyed. He followed him. And yet this is surprising, in, in both actions are surprising. That, that Jesus called him is surprising, and that Matthew followed is a little surprising. A tax collector is not exactly uh, the A-list sort of choice if you are building your band of disciples. I mean, yes, Jesus started with fishermen rather than scribes or Pharisees or the religious class, uh, but still, a tax collector, that's the lowest of the low, really. Uh, the disciples perhaps even looked at one another uh, when Jesus is calling Matthew to follow him and like, really? This guy? Couldn't you have gone with the scribe that we met earlier? Why this tax collector? Don't you know that tax collectors are no better than murderers or thieves or harlots. Indeed, the view of tax collectors in Jerusalem was extremely negative. They were viewed as vile and abhorrent because they were working for Rome, which was occupying the land, ruling over the Israelites. They were working for the enemy. And so to be a tax collector was to betray your people, your nation, your family, in order to serve your own interests. You're a traitor. And tax collectors, you know, they were not the most morally upright folks. You see how you, became, you would gain a region to collect taxes over it by bidding to Rome, and so, you know, you bid however much, you get a particular region, and then you can assess them, the tax that is owed to Rome, but you can also assess them whatever extra you want, as long as Rome gets her money. 
And so what happened? Obviously, tax collectors would assess and overassess the amount of taxes that needed to be paid. Maybe you can try to get a hold of how loathed tax collectors were. Uh, if you think about uh, even now how enjoyable you find it to pass through customs when you're returning from, you know, a, a ship somewhere, you know, getting off a cruise ship or something, or maybe you've flown internationally and you're coming home and uh, you go to those customs agents and they go rifling through all your stuff and if you've bought stuff overseas, uh, they're like, okay, I know that you paid for that overseas, but now you have to pay more money to bring it, to bring it in here. Nobody likes that. Nobody likes to pay taxes and duties. Now imagine if that same person also was a traitor to your nation. You would not like them very much. It's so hard for us to sort of understand how little a tax collector like Matthew would be liked. He would be reviled. And yet, Jesus calls Matthew. He chooses to call Matthew to himself, uh, not because Matthew is a good and upright citizen, but because he is full of mercy and grace, because his mission is to save sinners. Surprising, and it's surprising that, that Matthew responds to Jesus' call. And he rose and followed him. Matthew is really humble. He always leaves out details. You can look in Luke and Mark's account, and they add this, this just little nugget, leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Matthew leaves everything to follow Christ. It's at this point, uh, some clever commentators speculate. They love, well, obviously, Matthew had a relationship with Jesus prior to this. They knew who each other were. And, and, and so when Jesus shows up, it's not you know, wild for him to go, okay, I'm going to leave everything and follow Jesus. They probably knew each other one way or another, right? Like Jesus had these fishermen in his group, and the fishermen probably even knew Matthew as they paid their tax when they were traveling between the land of Herod Antipas and Herod uh, Philip, right? Like everybody knew each other, and Jesus called, and so it makes sense that he, he followed. And I suppose that's a possibility, but that's not what the text says. That's not what Mark says. It's not what Luke says. It's not what Matthew himself says. What Matthew says is that Jesus came and said, follow me, and he rose and followed him. So even if they did know each other, maybe they did, Matthew doesn't think that's important. He gives us the information we have to underscore once more for us the authority of the word of Jesus. Jesus speaks, and whoever or whatever he, he speaks to obeys. Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. That's the paralytic. Jesus rebukes the storm, and there's great calm. And just as the winds and the waves sit down at Jesus' instruction, Matthew stands up when Jesus calls. Jesus has the authority of a king. He calls Matthew to himself, and Matthew obeys. And perhaps this shouldn't be terribly 
shocking to us. I mean, is this not a picture of the Christian life, the beginnings of it? I mean, if you, if you are here and you follow Jesus, whether your conversion was like flipping on a light switch, you flip a light switch on in a room and boom, immediately light everywhere, or whether your conversion was more like one of those dimmer switches that you just turn on ever so gently and the light gets brighter and brighter and brighter and all of a sudden you're like, the light is on in the room. Or whether your conversion was either of those, at some point, when you heard the voice of Jesus, instead of forsaking it, you followed it. You left your old life and you started living a new life. This is what happens in conversion. You went from not believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and doing your own thing, following your own commands, following your own heart, to doing what Jesus commands and following his will for your life. There's a shift. And it was a miracle. Think back to your conversion. It, it might not have played out just like this interaction between Matthew and Jesus here, but it's just as miraculous. God's word came to you by God's spirit, and you were moved from death to life. All of a sudden, you believed that it was true. That God the Son became a man, died on a cross for your sins and for the sins of all who would turn from sin and believe in him. You believed that Jesus rose from the dead. And you believe that he will one day return. Conversion is a miracle every time it happens. Matthew hears the voice of Christ. And he follows him. So maybe you're here and you're a non-Christian. You've heard the word of God plenty of times. And you go, well, well how, how do I become a Christian? What, is that, what does it mean to be a Christian? It's all, it's all right here in verse 9. It's quite obvious, isn't it? Follow Jesus. Leave your life of sin. Listen to the word of God. Follow Jesus. Get in league with his ragtag band of disciples. Like how Romans says it in 10 verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So if you hear the voice of Christ this morning, obey, believe, follow. Matthew leaves his tax booth, he leaves his old life, he leaves his sins, and he throws a party in celebration. Before he follows Christ, wherever Jesus will lead him, he gets together with some old friends. He doesn't tell us that, but we'll read his account first. Verse 10 
And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, it's Matthew's house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Luke fills in the gap of, about it being Matthew's house, uh, chapter 5 and verse 28. And leaving everything, Matthew Levi rose and followed Jesus. And Matthew Levi made a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. The others or sinners here is a large group. It is comprised both of those who are just common people who don't follow the Pharisees' scruples and their customs about cleanliness laws. And it's also uh, your pimps and prostitutes and thieves and the like. You've got all sorts that are pictured at this feast at Matthew's house. And Jesus is not worried about optics, not worried about how it will look, not worried about what people will say, he loves these people, and he's happy to go to Matthew's house and celebrate Matthew's conversion with them. But you can understand why this would be a little bit scandalous. You can see down there in verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? They're going to be upset, not because Jesus is breaking the law, but because Jesus breaks their man-made customs. They're going to be upset because in, at that time, who you ate with sort of showed everybody who you were with, who you were in relationship with, who you were associating with. That's his group. And Jesus is eating with outsiders and underachievers, tax collectors. You don't actually have to imagine uh, yourself all the way back in the first century to get this idea that who you eat with are people that you are in relationship with. You just have to visit a local high school cafeteria at lunchtime. Right, what will you find there? Football players are eating with other football players. Generally speaking, come on, I know there are exceptions. Uh, your, your basketball team, they're eating with other basketball team members. Those are actually probably the same group. Uh, if there's a band, the people that are in the band, they're eating together. And there's even a group for people like me, right? People that, you know, just nerdy books and board games. All sorts of people at all sorts of tables. And the people that they are eating with, generally speaking, that's who they spend time with. That's their friend group, right? And so one of the things Jesus is doing here is he's showing himself to be true to that famous moniker he has. Friend of sinners. Jesus goes down to the devil's backbone with Matthew and spends an evening. He's a friend of sinners. Which, again, this should not come as a surprise to us. It's Christmas time. And we have not delved into Jesus' genealogy this year, nor will we, uh, not with 
any great degree of time. But it was about a year ago when we started going through the book of Matthew. You know, we've taken vacations into Kings and come back. But when we were in Matthew, we started this book by going through his genealogy. Remember, we said the genealogy serves as sort of a resume. And Matthew has built his by around the number 14, and he has intentionally left names out and put names in for a variety of reasons. We're not going to revisit all of them. But one of the interesting things that we highlighted was the fact that Matthew included women in Jesus' genealogy, which is highly irregular in the ancient world. Uh, we said it would be sort of like putting on your resume, uh, sometimes steals office supply, right? Not, not a great look. Uh, but, but Matthew puts five women in Jesus' genealogy. And so uh, we asked the question, why? Why would you do this, Matthew? It's intentional. And there are a variety of reasons, but I want to remind you of two. One is to show that Jesus has come to save Gentiles as well as Jews. And the other is to show us that Jesus came to save sinners. We summed it up by saying the family that Jesus comes from shows us the family that Jesus comes for. Jesus came to save sinners. Well, how do those five women show us that? Are they just big sinners because they're women? Well, yes, in part. Uh, but, but these five women in particular had pasts, have pasts that are not exactly, they just don't scream at you above reproach, okay? Like Tamar, remember, she tricks her father-in-law into getting her pregnant so that he would fulfill his promise and the messianic line would continue. That's Jesus' great, 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 great grandma, Tamar. Something like that, probably some more greats in there. Uh, then you have Rahab, and she was a prostitute, and she had spies in her house, remember? Then you have Ruth, who, again, she didn't sin, but she did sort of, I mean, if we were going to use contemporary nomenclature, she climbed into bed next to Boaz at night while he was asleep. He woke up, and he's like, what are you doing here? Right? And she's like, well, this could be our future together. You should propose to me. You got Ruth in there. Uh, then you have, uh, Matthew just calls her the wife of Uriah, because remember David murders Uriah when he takes Bathsheba to himself. And then you have Mary, who is, remember, a pregnant virgin. Right? That story is just not playing out in most places, right? You can imagine the whispers. Right? Joseph, what an idiot pregnant virgin. Son of God, she says. And so we see that even in these women with the questionable history, these outsiders, they're included in Jesus' family tree. Matthew is sort of laying these little seeds that are going to bloom throughout his gospel and at the very end of his gospel that show us that Jesus came to save sinners from all nations, that he values those that we might not typically value. He values outsiders, lepers, and Roman centurions, and mothers-in-law, and demon-possessed men who are unclean, and tax collectors, and people like you and me. 
Jesus saves sinners. I do think there is a challenge here for us to love those who are not like us. To love those who don't know Christ. To be like Jesus, to be friends of sinners. That's not the easiest thing in the world to do. If you'll allow me an analogy, I'll try to explain why. Uh, It's sort of like uh, the world is an ocean. And Jesus has prayed, not that we would be taken out of the world, but that we would be kept from the evil one. Like our responsibility is to be salt and light. If the world is mashed potatoes, we're to be the salt on those mashed potatoes. And so if the world is is an ocean, it's sort of like we are to to get into the, the Jesus boat and float along it. And our goal is to pull dead bodies out of it into the lifeboat. With me? The trouble is, is if we aren't careful, water will get into the boat and we'll be sunk. If in our attempt to reach out of the boat and reach over to those who are drowned in the world, we reach over so far we will find ourselves out of the boat and in the water. This is a danger. I think sometimes in our attempts to reach the world, we lean over so far that we fall in. Yes, we want to befriend sinners. We want to love sinners. We want to be like Jesus, which means being upright like Jesus. Yes, Jesus is slandered, as a glutton and a drunk. But those things are not true of him. Some have wrongly taken this passage and used it as an excuse to justify their own sinful behavior. Jesus never sinned. He never endorses sin. He never encourages sin. This passage is not a green light for you to walk headlong into sin. It is a summons to love sinners like Jesus did, like Jesus does, like Jesus loves you and me and all his people, all who come to him. I I would have loved to be at this party, by the way. can imagine. I imagine it was boisterous. Calvin tries to make this sound like it wasn't that fun of a party. He's like, of course, everything was in moderation and, you know, very austere. I don't think so. I mean, this seems like a pretty rowdy group. And I sort of visualize Matthew standing up, you know, clinking his glass, you know, ding, 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 ding. Attention, everybody. I'd like to have everybody's attention. Uh, as you guys know, I'm leaving the business. Applause. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I want, before, before I go and, and leave officially, I wanted you guys to know it's all, it's all because of, of one man. It's because of that man, Jesus. He's, he's sitting right over there. J- Jesus, Jesus, could you stand up and introduce yourself to everybody? everybody? Jesus, Jesus, everybody. That's Jesus. 
mean, that was actually the goal of this celebration, you understand, right? Not just so that Matthew can have a good time. I think, at least in part, this celebration is about Matthew introducing his friends to Jesus. Don't miss how simple evangelism is, church. It's as simple as food on your table. You have a built-in opportunity in your everyday life to share Jesus with people by sharing meals with people. Tim Chester has written a wonderful book about this called A Meal with Jesus. I highly recommend it. Uh, I had one pastor say this week, uh, you know, many a person has come to Christ through their tummy. You sort of imagine, you know, somebody sits back, oh, I'm stuffed, I could just die. Really? And where do you think you go when you die? You know, you see those conversations taking place, relationships taking place. Use your lunches and your dinners and your homes to build relationships with each other and with others who do not yet know Christ. Also recognize that Matthew does not evangelize in isolation. I think one of the biggest misconceptions of evangelism is that it's this solo endeavor. That's just me by myself. I'm like a secret agent on a mission. When the reality is, the best evangelism is done together as a church. Invite people to hang out with you and other Christians. I mean, we actually have a, you know, Matthew's feast sort of opportunity every Sunday morning. Invite people here that they might be introduced to the Lord Jesus. So we might together tell them, look, this is Jesus. He's changed everything for me. I left the old life. I'm living a new life, and it's all because of him. Jesus is the friend of sinners. He even saves tax collectors. He even saves people like me and people like you. And the Pharisees can't stand it because he's breaking their customs. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Notice this question is an accusation. And uh, it's my contention that it's probably in an attempt to sow at least a little bit of discord between the disciples and the Christ they follow. They don't speak to Jesus. They speak to his disciples. And I can't help but take warning. <laughs> there are snakes in this world. There are false teachers who will try to set the people of God one against another and even against their Lord. And the disciples, I don't know how they responded. We don't get given their perspective Pharisees are objecting here, and Jesus hears it. Verse 12, when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. 
go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For, because, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus answers their objection with a proverb, a diagnosis, and a mission statement. The proverb is pretty straightforward and is not original to Jesus. It was well known. It's not those who are well who have need of a physician, but those who are sick. So Jesus is saying, the reason I'm eating with tax collectors and sinners is because they're obviously sin-sick. They need me, the great physician. I'm the doctor. We've sort of seen this play out in Jesus' ministry in chapter 8, right? Those who are sick and outcast coming to him and being made well. It's a proverb and motion in the life of Christ. And so that's his first thing. These people are clearly sick. Those who are sick go to the doctor. If you're well, you don't usually go to the doctor. Doctors see patients who are sick. And then he moves to the second thing. He gives them what I've called a diagnosis. And that might have you scratching your head a bit, but, but look with me. He says in verse 12, I'm sorry, verse 13, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Go and learn was a rabbinic way of speaking. It basically meant go and study the scripture more. You haven't done it enough. And Jesus is using it here with a little bit of sarcasm and, and mockery. It's like, you who know the Bible so well, uh, you need to go and learn your Bibles. Go to the book of Hosea and chapter 6 and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And this is a doozy of a saying from Jesus. Uh, but I think to appreciate it, we've got to, again, we've got to situate it in the Old Testament. We've got to situate it in its context. And so we're going to do a little bit of work here, but we're going to get to the point. It's going to be worth it, okay? Uh, and our study through Kings will help you here. So if you think back to Kings, this wasn't too long ago for us, the kingdom is divided, remember? Solomon takes to himself many wives, and the kingdom is divided as a result of his sin. You have ten tribes in the north and one tribe in the south. That one tribe is probably made of two tribes. It's probably Judah and Benjamin together. And so you have uh, Rehoboam in Judah and Jeroboam in the north. Two kingdoms, two kings. And what Jeroboam does, even though he first appears to us as sort of like a, a Moses-like figure leading the people out from underneath of Rehoboam's oppression, what he does is incredibly stupid. He goes uh, full Aaron. You never go full Aaron. He builds not one, but two golden calves at Bethel and Dan for the people to worship. And he makes up his own religion out of his own mind and teaches the people that they are worshiping the one true God of Israel by following his, Jeroboam's, prescriptions for worship. And so what you end up with is a counterfeit religion that the people are all participating in. They're offering sacrifices. They're, they're claiming those sacrifices are being made to God. I mean, Jeroboam even says when he sets up these golden calves 
Behold your gods who brought you out of Egypt. Right? He's claiming to worship the one true God, but he's worshiping him in his own way. This is defiance of God, rebellion against God. Worship, according to whatever we want to do, dishonors God. The only worship that honors God is that which is offered to him in accord with his word. The reason I bring up Jeroboam in the northern kingdom and this particular form of worship is because it outlasts him. Jeroboam dies and the false worship of the north stays on the scene until they are destroyed by Assyria and go into exile. And their false worship practices and their idolatry, well, it bleeds down into the south and into Judah. I love the way Ezekiel puts it later on down in the timeline. He basically says, uh, you have two wayward sisters and Judah follows the example of her sister in the north. And here are, here are some things, I'm just going to do two. Uh, this is what God says in Amos to the north. He's prophesying to the north through Amos, and he says these words in Amos chapter 4, verse 4. He says, come to Bethel and transgress, that's sin. Come to Gilgal, it's another worship site, and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifice every morning. Every three days, offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is lemon and proclaim free will offerings. Publish them, for so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord. And so he's telling them, yeah, go to those false worship sites, offer your false worship, and know that you are sinning. Go ahead. That counterfeit religion is just piling up transgression upon transgression upon transgression a counterfeit religion that is abhorrent in the eyes of God. Now in Hosea, he's prophesying primarily to the north, but he also has an eye on Judah in the south. And this, I mean, the whole book of Hosea is set in that frame. Remember, Hosea is commanded to take to himself a wayward wife. He marries somebody that he knows is going to be unfaithful to him, and this is to be a picture of the relationship between God and his people. Right? That's the context that we, we are sort of coming into when we get into Hosea chapter 6. And this is, where, this is the part that Jesus quoted, okay? So this is what Hosea 6 says. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early. Therefore, I have cut them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And my judgment goes forth as the light. Because I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. God is saying, I do not want counterfeit worship. I do not want sacrifices that are offered to me empty of faith. The sacrifices are not the problem. The faithlessness and the lovelessness of the people is the problem. They go after other lovers and scorn the love of God. 
the word therefore, uh, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The word there is hesed, right, in Hebrew. It's a broad range word, but it means things like loyal love, steadfast love, unfailing love, or I love the King James Version here, loving kindness, right? I desire your loving kindness, your, your mercy, not sacrifice. So all of this takes us back to the Pharisees. What is Jesus saying to them? Well, think about it. The Pharisees think they are following God and are not. Metaphorically, they have poured the blood out of their rituals. They've taken the heart out of their obedience. They have been so bold as to dress their disobedience to God up in piety's clothing. Worship before golden calves while feigning obedience to the one true God. So here's sort of the, what's unexpected. The Pharisees have betrayed the people just as much as the tax collectors. The Pharisees are being lumped by Jesus together with the false worshipers in the northern people and the empty worshipers of Judah. He's saying to the Pharisees that think they are well and right with God, that they are false, they are loveless, that they might be performing the right sacrifices, but those sacrifices, if not animated by faith and love, are worthless. God desires chesed. He desires mercy and loving kindness. That's what makes the sacrifice worthwhile. And Jesus says of the Pharisees, you're counterfeit. You're false. And so here's how his argument's going. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. That's why I'm with these tax collectors and sinners. And do you see what he's done by telling them to go and learn what Hosea 6 means? He's saying, you are sick too. You need to go to the doctor. You might think that you are well, but you are riddled with a terminal disease. He's trying to open their blinded eyes to their spiritual condition. And then he goes and says, because I came, this is his mission statement, not to call the righteous, but sinners. So his goal is to show them that they need him, that they too are sick, and he warns them. I did not come to call the righteous. Friends, we should hear the warning of Jesus Christ here. Whether you are a churchgoer or a worldgoer, if you think that you are morally upright, that you do not need Jesus, that you're really a good person, you've got it together on your own, Jesus says he will not call you to himself, which means you are condemned to suffer beneath the just wrath of God for all eternity. That's the warning. Jesus only saves sinners. You know, the obvious question that we don't ask enough, save from what? The wrath of God. 
your disobedience is offensive to the holy God who made you. When you put a crown on your own head and say, I will rule me, I will rule my world, I'm going to do it my way and not your way, God, you are in rebellion. And the right and just punishment for your forsaking God is death stretched out across eternity. And the punishment does fit the crime. It is what your sins have earned. You cannot save yourself. But Jesus can. Why he came to save sinners. God the Son sent God the Father, the power of God the Holy Spirit to take a second nature onto himself. He became what he was not while never ceasing to be what he was and was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. He did that so that he could come and take the crown that you and I deserve. The crown of thorns upon his brow. The curse of hell upon the cross. Jesus died for the sins of all those weak and sick and weary people that he calls his. And he rose from the dead and now wears a diadem of glory. God will end evil. He will punish all sin. The question is, will you take refuge in the Lord Jesus? Will you hear his word and follow him? Put your faith in him as your sin-bearing substitute and as your risen Lord. Matthew 9 Verses 9 through 13 show us that Jesus came to save sinners. That's why he came. I think it'll help you, as I, it helped me, put all of this, or to see all of this, I guess, through a lens of an old parable that uh, I'm going to dress up in Christmas language, so, this, so we can call this a Christmas sermon, I guess. A father had two sons. The younger wished him dead and asked for a cash advance on his inheritance. And then he threw it all away on wild and sinful living. The older brother feigned care for the father, but much like the younger, was most concerned with the father's wealth. Years passed. And then, one Christmas day, snow falling from the air, while the older brother was out in town picking up some eggnog, the younger brother came home. He was poorly dressed, starved, and looked like death. Still, he got up the courage to knock on the door and ask his father for help. 
And he raised his fists into the biting cold of the night air. But before he could knock, the door swung open. And he was awash in warmth and light, being dragged inside by his father. Immediately, he was covered in the best blanket that the house had. Sat in his father's leather chair right next to the fireplace. He was given hot chocolate and assurances that he was in the family and that the wealth he had squandered was of no concern. That joy filled the house celebrated. The finest wine was brought up from the cellar. The finest china was set out. Food was scattered across tables. They even had a charcuterie board. It was a celebration. Laughing mingled with tears that sent a divine music into the air. And it was then the older brother pulled into the driveway. Grabbing his eggnog, he exited the car and shut the door with a thump. And the music settled into his ears. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. And lifting his eyes, he saw his brother dancing with his nephews and nieces in the living room. He was enraged. He threw the eggnog down and was stormed off to go brood in the garage. And yet his father, always aware, noticed the foot tracks in the snow. And so he went out to the garage where he found his older son seething. And there he endured his older son's screaming and emoting in frustration. After listening patiently, he assured him of his love and told him that he should be glad because his dead brother is alive. He told him to come inside. The wine is good. The cheese and meats on the charcuterie board are great. Come in, celebrate. And the father returned to the house. The older brother was left standing in the cold. Friends, Jesus saves sinners. He brings them into the father's house and into feasting by his blood and spirit. Friend, do not go the course of the Pharisee, of the one who thinks they are well and has no need of a doctrine. Do not stay outside of the kingdom this Christmas. Join the feast of sinners made saints. Hear the call of Jesus and follow him. Father, we thank you that you sent Jesus that he might die for sinners like us. That he might rise from the dead and take us with him out of death. We thank you that the incarnation means that 
he became like us, and the resurrection means that we will become like him. By your grace and your mercy, your loving kindness, you give to us eternal life. What great love. Thank you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.